Hey everyone, this is Asher, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. Today we have a really compelling guest, Andrea Abikaram, an Arab-American, genderqueer, punk, poet-performer, cyborg, writing on the art of killing bros, the intricacies of cyborg bodies, trauma, and delayed healing. Their chapbook, The Aftermath, attempts to queer Fanon's vision of how poetry fails to inspire revolution. Andrea's first book, Extra Transmission, which was just published this year, 2019, is a poetic critique of the U.S. military's role in the war on terror. They toured with Sister Spit and live in New York. And I wanted to share this blurb from the back of their book, Extra Transmission, that was just published. I feel like it really captures something important about um, Andrea's work. So I am going to read this. And the, the cool thing, the cool story about this blurb is that the person who wrote the blurb, Jasbir Poir, is a theorist and the author of terrorist assemblages, amongst many other things. And her work is really influential for Andrea. And so the story of how this blurb came to be is really indicative, I think, of how queer connections <laughs> end up happening. I think it's really important the way that connectivity across genres and identities or aspects of identity kind of come together. And basically, Andrea is a really big fan of Jasbir's work and reached out to her and Jasbir read the work and, and clearly was very moved. So this is what Jasbir has to say about it. This is demanding prose that scrapes at the bones of psychic worlds. There's nothing accidental about a signature injury. Andrea Abi Karam avers and their searing interrogation of the wounds of militarization, masculinity, and trauma is unflinching, yet implosive. From Me Too to War Machines, every once-removed scale of violence comes crashing into each other, leaving the reader raw with implication. We are haunted with ledgers that can never be balanced. So thank you for listening to this episode, and please do review the episode on iTunes and subscribe. That really helps us spread the word. If you can donate, I really would appreciate a donation on Patreon because we need some support for production costs. It isn't free, and this podcast is really reaching a lot of people, and I'm hoping it can reach more. And I hope that it can be potentially a more regular podcast. And so I want to be able to release episodes maybe more frequently uh, so that we can think about embodiment and queerness together more often and get lots of different perspectives on that. So really, truly, it would be very helpful if you could ask one or two other people that you know to become a donor on Patreon. You can do $1 a month and that would help. And if you can't donate, please spread the word about the podcast and send me messages and tell me what you think. 
Thank you for listening, and here is Andrea Abi Karam. I do like to start the episodes by asking a question and answer it obviously in in whatever way feels right for you but if you could think about how you learned to know about or feel into having a body what comes to mind when you think about that i was a very active kid like very tomboy status i rollerbladed i played tennis i played ice hockey and so i was always very like this really connected and into like adrenaline and speed and movement and puberty is a horrible thing slows you down or it slowed me down in some ways but yeah and i still today feel very I mean I like bike all the time and run and still play tennis so definitely I was very horrified during the teenage puberty period before I was like self-aware as being trans yeah what did you feel when you or what do you feel when you are able to be biking or running or moving in in a way that feels good for you what how does that kind of interface with the way you feel gender wise or in your body I mean I would like to think that um movement and athleticism is not gendered Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I like that for all of us yes um And, well, it feels like being, like, immediate and aware rather than disconnected. And before I had top surgery, I was, like, blacking out, like, a third of my body, pretending it wasn't existing. And, I mean, I also feel like being embodied and living somewhat active adrenaline exciting lifestyle is anti-capitalist because it's like against the cubicle it's like against like the ways that Mm. work and like these structured types of lifestyles contain the body yeah also like dance parties Mm -hmm. because there's like a wildness and releasing thing and also physical language rather than spoken language that occurs on the dance floor yeah is that that physicality of language is is really interesting and I think that there's something also I mean there's a something very queer about that in a really broadly broadly speaking way the the idea of kind of a historical legacy of flirtation or communication that happens without words or kind of in the dark at a dance party or yeah I don't know I mean have you what is your experience of of 
that connection, if it, if at all. You mean the connection of unspoken language to embodiment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like a queer embodiment or queerness or, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's like a multitude of languages by which to like communicate with other people. And mm-hmm. like you said, it's very queer to communicate physically or like across a room or on a dance floor and I carry that over into my like writing practice I like use lots of capitalization and not appropriate grammar and mutated spellings of certain words which is like a way of querying text language Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm really I mean I'm Lebanese I have giant eyes I love eye contact and it is like very unnerving to people but it's also like an incredible way by which to communicate. Do you enjoy the unnerving part of it? (laughs) I think it's interesting and fascinating to see how people react and it also I think speaks to like this culture where that tends towards isolation rather than like hyper connection. It's like if I'm doing a reading and I say like I speak I perform a very intense part and then make eye contact with people it has a very powerful effect than if I just only read off of the page yeah yeah where have you found a lot of receptivity around that kind of energy bringing that kind of energy to either an audience or a community I know that you've you know you've lived you lived in New York you've you've traveled a lot you've lived in the Bay Area is that right um, yes. In Oakland, yeah. Are there certain like environments or places where you've found more or less receptivity to kind of your way of communication, your the multitude of ways that you communicate and prefer to kind of embody or be in the world, present yourself in different settings? Yeah. I mean, I find like a much more open flow of communication and connection and intimacy and punk and DIY spaces both like the communities themselves and in performance or reading spaces because the whole thing of like a punk show or like a DIY space is the hierarchy of like stage to audience and performer to audience or performer to observer is flattened and like the audience can at punk shows like the audience can interact with the band and sometimes it is rowdy and sometimes it's not but um that kind of like porosity between performer and audience feels very powerful and feels like inviting the audience to participate in what you're doing rather than like like the palladium or like the giant giant theaters where the band is like 10 feet off the floor from the stage and very far away or like another good example is karaoke like karaoke queer karaoke because mm. like people you don't know like might sing along and you make friends <laughs> I went to karaoke last night for a friend's birthday so it's on my mind um and yeah and like I I did a book launch in New York at this like lefty bookstore and they like basically let me throw a party it was really fun and it was packed and like the audience was like half a foot away from me and it was very amazing I did a different book launch at I'm not talking shit, but I did different book launch at McNally Jackson, which is like kind of a more corporate style bookstore in Manhattan. And it felt very stiff and like the audience like didn't react as much. Right. Um, And so I think in like less institutionalized spaces, there's 
an invitation and an excitement to like react and participate in the performance rather than something more formal. Right. And in a way, I think what I get from reading your work and just, you know, interacting with you is that there's a kind of investment in a collective reckoning with whatever is happening in the space. So, you know, it's not, as you said, that kind of us and them dynamic gets gets flattened a bit and we all are sort of feeling or invited to feel with each other and given what you end up writing about in a way or what you're bringing to your writing and what you're bringing to your performances I imagine that you know there is a kind of an invitation to to experience anger with you or experience grief with you and being like inviting people into that space of or maybe it's not even an invitation maybe it's just that like you're tapping into in some spaces you're able to tap into a collective experience of grief or anger um and many other things too yeah definitely I mean it's part of I mean I have I do poetry readings and I also do performance work and I um collaborate with this performance artist and dancer and choreographer named Lix Z and part of our whole practice is trying to attempt to create a temporary autonomous zone with the audience. For those who are unfamiliar with what that means, it's like the moment in in a protest or a riot or an uprising where collectivity overcomes infrastructure, like when the freeway gets blocked and then there's a dance party on the freeway, like that is like a temporary autonomous zone, like a a rupture of like institutional, infrastructural, oppressive space and like being able to temporarily transform it into some sort of like moment of ecstasy that everyone is a part of. So part of my performance, my collaborative performance practices um, attempts to do that attempts to create temporary autonomous zone with the audience at our performances. Um, mm-hmm. And you can feel it in the air. It's incredible. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, I mean, that's this, the, yes. I think that that's the thing that came to my mind for some reason is, you know, the feeling I had when I first went to, I mean, certainly I have the experience of the context you're talking about in terms of protest and mm-hmm. um, certain forms of protest are like the Dyke March or, or, you know, certain things that happen at the Dyke March or um, I guess I'm dating myself, but, you know, like when I was quite a bit younger going to the living in San Francisco and going to the Dyke March and being so young and so newly like sexual and out and just like you know seeing people having sex in public on the street you know while the cops were kind of just watching you know because the dyke march was so established that that was you know i mean that's certainly a privileged thing for certain people to be able to do and take that risk and whatever the case may be but you know it really was happening and it was cool, you know, it was really interesting and inspiring to me. And that feels really different, that the energy of that experience and feels really different 
from, you know, these kind of organized LGBTQ spaces um, for, can you know, I guess I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but just thinking about the difference between the energy of those, those different ways of being. Yeah, absolutely. I am a huge lover of SF Pride, Dyke Mar- Trans March and Dyke March, and mm-hmm. exactly that when we were talking about when there are so many queers that public sex can just happen and the city becomes a playground and it's unstoppable for like two days mm-hmm. and it's such a come down when like commuter rush hour happens on Monday morning and they like power wash the streets mm-hmm. have you found spaces or experiences outside of you know your performance work and maybe the work of other people in now that you live in New York that feel that have a a feeling of that energy, maybe not necessarily public sex, but, or public sex, but, you know, some energy around um, a kind of resistance in queer community, um, like communal action, or I don't know, re-speech comes to mind, although I don't want to, I'm not saying that re-speech is the same as, um, as the Dyke March in San Francisco necessarily, but I think there's some kind of commonalities. Yeah, absolutely. Respeech definitely feels um, amazing. And I love, cause it's like a space for queers together and also be slutty and also is temporary because of the way that seasons work in New York. Mm-hmm. And I love the like, very slow collective momentum on like Sunday morning to like all meet up and like take the train or bike together and like this like moment of very like slow but like gravitational momentum towards re-speech and just like fun casual encounters and like meeting people or making out or whatever. The other place that unfortunately is no longer is the dream house where Spectrum had parties which they lost their space at the end of January and they had really amazing like all night queer parties that had DJs but also like queer performances like live performances and also had this like amazing hedonistic collective feeling it seems like it sounds like something that you are really you're kind of seeking out or even when I was reading your work you know it's kind of like you're provoking or inviting people into in some ways like feeling a a longing for that within the reader the kind of wildness that that gets lost I think a lot just in as you said in like cubicle or daily life um the way it's structured capitalism you know whatever we want to attribute it to but yeah and I really liked that about your work I guess, speaking of your work, maybe we could talk a little bit about how you came into writing and thinking about poetry and sort of how you feel about your work now. You have a book that just was published and yeah, tell us about you as a writer. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, Big question. Yeah. Well, I like 
was a closet poet for a long time, like in high school, middle school and high school, like the way that a lot of emo teenagers are, I think. I had this like vision that I was going to be a fiction writer. And I, when I went to undergrad, I actually didn't study creative writing. I was a neuroscience major and did an English minor. And I thought I was going to go to med school and um, like worked as an EMT. And I, the entire time I was like on this like trajectory, I felt like I was repressing my like creative impulse, but I kind of also thought that I wouldn't be able to like survive like financially or job wise if I just was like, I'm going to be a poet now. And then I moved to the Bay Area and I was like, I'm going to be a poet now. (laughs) The Bay has like an incredible queer community and poetry community. And I just like met tons of queers and poets very quickly. And I was like, I want to be a poet and just went to all these house readings and like readings at the Bay Area Public School, which was like an alternative school that was established during Occupy Oakland. And like formed a chapbook collective and started like this reading series with my friend Drea Marina called Words of Resistance, which was an open floor radical poetry night every month, specifically like a space for people to read about participation in movements. And it was amazing because so many people came who weren't like self-identified poets or writers. They just came because they like had intense experiences and wanted to be in conversation with other people. And I went to, after two years of living in the Bay, I went to Mills College for Poetry MFA. Mm-hmm. And that moment kind of shifted from, I was, I was like totally untrained. Like I was just writing like poems that were like one or two pages and they were good, but I like had no idea how to conceptualize making a book or a book project or like a durational like research intensive project and also since I didn't study I was an English major I was a minor but I like there were all these books like that I needed to read that I hadn't read and just no idea like what to read and it, it was like amazing to and I was also extremely lucky my cohort was like 90% like lefty queers <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, I don't know if you know if you've talked a lot about like the MFA institution or like the workshop space, but I hear I've heard so many horror stories of people being in workshop with like hypernormy or conservative like mm-hmm. cis white men, and I just like didn't have that experience. I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wrote extra transmission while I was at Mills, and I came to it. I was trying to write about I was like have had this like lifelong obsession with like urban spaces and public spaces and like thinking about hostile architecture. And I was trying to write about global capitalism and like the city, but it ended up being, it ended up feeling very like detached. Like I wasn't implicated in it. There wasn't like a strong subjectivity or I, and it was like, it was like kind of like emotionally flat or something. And then I was just, I just like scrapped it and started writing poems about killing bros from like all these horrible experiences I had when I lived in Boston, which is a very rowy, homophobic city. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just like let loose and just started writing these kill bro poems. And that is where um, extra transmission actually began. 
and it evolved into a much more complicated project. Um, that is where it began. <laughs> right. Wow. And while, and while that was happening, while you were, you're coming into that sort of connection with, I guess, in some ways, impl- as you said, implicating yourself and you being a, a voice in the work, um, letting loose and all that, is that when you were also transitioning? Yeah. So I started transitioning when I was at Mills, my, this, so I like came out as using they pronouns, like during pride weekend in between my first and second year at Mills, which is hilarious and very <laughs> cute or something. I was like at band practice and I was like, Hey bandmates, I'm using they pronouns now. And then we like went to Transmarch. Um, mm-hmm. And I, hadn't like thought about surgery or hormones or anything like really and until there were people around me getting top surgery and I felt this like insane amount of jealousy and I was like okay I have to deal with this um and my I was looking into it my first semester, second year at Mills, and then I ended up getting a surgery date pretty quickly during, like, or right around spring break time, my final semester at Mills. How did you, how did you deal with it? Like, what, when you say you had to deal with it, you had to confront it, like, what, what was, I mean, you don't need to get into details about it, but, you know, sort of what was helpful for you, or what was about that process of kind of confronting that jealousy and envy and desire? Well, it was first about, like, accepting that I wanted a Mm -hmm. kind of intense physical change um, Mm. rather than just, like, not, like, being unhappy with my chest and not thinking, like, not thinking further than that. Just, like, being unhappy and, like, wearing very, very tight sports bras. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it just, like allowing myself to be like okay I want this thing and now I have to figure out how to navigate like the healthcare system to get it yeah on a graduate school schedule (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. once I like allowed myself to accept that I wanted it I made it happen pretty quickly I'm I'm a Leo I'm very determined and like I get very fixated like if I want Mm -hmm. something I am like going for it right yeah, I think that's really, it's just helpful, I think, for people listening to hear, and it really resonates with just so many stories of mm-hmm. people I know and, you know, whatever, that, that that moment of kind of moving from realizing that you, there are some things, not total, not a lot, but there are some things that can be done or tapped into around shifts in your body that actually really are possible and some things aren't possible but you know some things are and moving from kind of a chronic dissatisfaction or discomfort into a place where you could maybe imagine feeling more in your body it's it's a pro it's I mean it's a process um but it's just it to me it's interesting that in the process of doing that you are also writing this book essentially and so I would love for you to read from from your work if you would be so kind yes of course um so I'm gonna read 
for those listening, I'm going to read from the very beginning. Make sure I have. Okay. Okay. I used to work in a lab with rats for a long time, a memory lab. We were trying to figure out what part of their tiny brains could remember how to navigate space, what told them which way to go, a model for humans, a model for curing Alzheimer's, a model for navigation, a model for humanless navigation, a model for drones. I quit shortly after the lab got funding from the US Department of Defense. Did you know that if you're a combat veteran with PTSD, you can get a nonprofit that is funded by the CIA to give you a dog? I want a dog. Check one, check, check, check two, check, check three, can you hear me? Check four, is the room empty? Check five, can you hear me? Check six, oh well, check seven, my story is empty anyway. Check eight, lights off, check nine, good night. Check 10, next on CNN, a poetry of directness. Kill all the noise bros who move to Brooklyn and tell everyone desperately that the noise they're making is the only thing they believe in. Kill all the bro poets. Actually, you know what? Kill all the bros. Kill all the power dynamics in the room. Kill all the power dynamics in the white room. Kill all the power dynamics in all the rooms. Pull them down by their greasy cables. Get your hands dirty. Kill all the hierarchies of power of who is publishing who and who is fucking who and who they fucked before they got published. Publish who they fucked or don't. Kill the nonprofit board of poets who scheduled the endless summer reading during Dyke March this Saturday, and kill the sociality that makes queers feel excluded and that makes the orgy dangerous for our bodies and that makes you select who to make eye contact with and who to ignore on alternating nights, and which beer to schedule on which day, and which bar to go to after which reading, and kill the system that was designed to alienate everyone from each other and that caused this desperate sociality to emerge, and kill the system of gendered power that makes it so hard to inhabit every moment in my own skin, to know how to detect each buzz like counting the number of trains that pass at night and kill the language of avoidance that made it so hard for me to write most. Check 11 is anybody out there on the surface of the signature injury on the surface circle one option below mild moderate severe in the framework of it all, the female body in combat reads differently, computes differently, glitches differently. But the female body in combat is not a state of on opposed to off. It's a state of always on, always watching, waiting for the moment of the signature injury, whatever it might be. It costs so much to maintain the body in constant combat. It must consume and consume and consume just to stay awake before it burns it all away too fast. She gnaws at her own fingertips to stay alert, to stay awake, to stay warm. Easy to get cold out there in the desert at night, hard to maintain the skin sealed to the bones below, to the meat beneath against each blast and every impact. The environment tries to pull it apart, make little entrances for itself, ports to communicate information back to the base, shuttle information back up the chain of command, ports to communicate information, ports to channel energy into the surroundings. Static shoots across the dry desert air as if it's not enough to just exist in constant combat. Command wants the full download, the full extra transmission. She's tried so hard to keep zones strictly in. Direct line to read each electric impulse each time a muscle moves. Break, embrace, skin just a shell, plastic sheeting to keep the muscle moist. A case for your new iPhone X. Release innermost secrets through your fingertips. Eyes just a mirror, a high resolution scan of the surroundings. Breaks in vision noted, breaks in brush noted. Lack of cover noted. Body just a case for desirable information until they get a new shipment of those who must volunteer their own skin cases to protect the TV set station in your living room, to enter combat, to take orders, to take the fall. Every body is consumable. Every American body is consumable. There's a whole country back home 
to manufacture more willing bodies for the volunteer-based army, a country that sometimes agrees to relax its borders in exchange for the combat-ready body for the soft skin that caves in from every bit of shrapnel, for the soft skull that splits on impact, for the soft brain that bounces back and forth inside the skull, for the soft brain that tears and swells, for the soft brain that after the tears and the swells still turns the body back on, still serves, for the soft person who can't remember. On the assembly line to American nationalism, little clicks along the conveyor belt. As of 2017, 375, 230 US troops have sustained a traumatic brain injury or TBI. TBIs are the signature injury of the war on terror. They are severe concussions where past memories are erased and daily memory continues to be difficult. We're in an armored vehicle somewhere in Iraq or Afghanistan on a desert road, not a lot of cover and your vehicle gets hit by a rocket-propelled grenade, or you drive over the tripwire for an improvised explosive device, there is a blast. You are thrown into the wall or the roof or the ground. Your body hits the wall or the roof or the ground hard with force. Bones break. Your brain moves forward and back against the inside of your skull, like all those really sick drunk driving movies where no one survives that you have to watch in driver's ed when you're 16. It's like that except you survive the blast, get up and run. Your body survives, but now you have to cope with becoming a new person. Select a PDA from the moving belt. Slide the PDA all the way into the port. It should not hurt. It should feel comfortable. It should feel natural. There may be initial misfirings. You may see scans of the calendar behind the eyes. They will feel like dreams. You won't miss any appointments. And remember, it's just a prototype. You will not be satisfied. Head-on collision, double vision. Right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And for our listeners, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to purchase this book. Um, and that it's really definitely worth checking out and also, you know, seeing you read in person if people can. So, um you know, speaking of seeing you read, I I know that you have some interesting thoughts having read this um, this work and while touring. So maybe you could speak a little bit about how that what that was like to bring some of this work um, into the world as a you know queer trans person. Yeah. Um, I mean, the text is very confrontational and um, polyvocal. There's a lot of voices. Mm -hmm. um, so it follows the story of a woman who is an, who's an American citizen who got citizenship through participating in the U.S. Army, fighting in the war on terror sustaining traumatic brain injury and then basically becoming a new person, like not having, not retaining any memory. Mm. And so there's this like cyborg plot line that is simultaneously her recovery and also like the trans experience of body hacking mm -hmm. um, and like glitching and like lots of stuff about wires um, and like fusion and rejection. So the like, very brief elevator pitch is the book is a poetic critique of the U.S. military's role in the war on terror. And so touring or performing in places that aren't like 
liberal big cities as like calling this out, critiquing this, mm-hmm. being Arab on stage, being trans on stage has invited a number of problematic responses. Yeah. I was on tour with Sister Spit and I was working the merch table after the show because we all like rotated. And some like older white woman came up to me and asked me how Lebanese are you? And I was just like, how white are you? Like, why would you ask me that? I was like, are you going to buy a book or what? And I had someone at a different reading come up to me and misgender me and then say how much she loved when like, or she misgendered me by saying how much she loved when like women fought in the military. Oh, and it was after I did like a 20 minute reading. So it was like long. It wasn't like one or two pages. It was, you know, complex and layered. And I was just like, did you just not listen? Like I'm that's what you got out of it. Yeah. Trans and I'm talking about like the US military like destroying the Middle East for no reason. Right. Yeah. Wild. I mean, it's, it's not, I guess it's not shocking, but it, it is so, I think that it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that your, your work really does implicate, it really implicates the body. and It's very visceral in both kind of your, your presentation of it, like your physical presentation of it, but also, you know, the language is really evocative of bodies and the bodily experience of trauma. And to think that someone could be in the audience and sort of miss that seems is, is understandable because so much of, so much of what you're talking about is dissociated by so many people who, who don't feel comfortable. I think for many reasons, I'm sh- I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that, but, you know, kind of dissociate around so many things that you actually are, are just kind of bringing into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it seems, I feel like it's two things. I mean, it's like that moment when, like, yeah, as a visibly, speaking for myself, as a visibly trans person, I like, I like, I and also as like a queer glamorous person, I like wear a lot of crop tops and like mesh, like things that very obviously show that I have scars and like pecs, honestly. Um, And then people still like misgender me all the time, even if I'm wearing like literally a see-through shirt. I just think it's this thing where like people see what they want to see. Like they, they want, they're so like rigorously trained to uphold the gender binary they just like they just want to see that so badly and so they project it yeah yeah no absolutely I mean do you feel in other ways that 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 happens with you or with your work or with how you're putting yourself out in the world around other aspects of who you are and you know assumptions that people make or that they need to make in order to, um, yeah, that they feel compelled to make um, because they need to uphold other, you know, kind of ways that they understand either relationship or 
relationships or sexuality or, um, you know, assumptions about who you are as a trans person, Arab person, you know, all of that. Like, do you feel like there are other things that that you've experienced? I mean, I'm sh- I know that there are, I'm sure that there are, but I'm just wondering what comes to mind when you think about that. Part of why I'm insistent on being glamorous and slutty other than pleasure and desire is like to present aggressively queer all the time because I think because of like the society we live in like that feels like a political and evocative act a lot of the times Mm -hmm. especially while like touring in places like I've toured like in the south and in Texas and I've had like very real conversations with like my bandmates or like other poets that I've gone on tour with that were like okay like we're at a gas station we're like going in together like you know like safety becomes a real concern but still like refusing to present differently Mm -hmm. simultaneously yeah yeah can you talk a little bit about the pleasure aspect of it for you I mean I think that they're not the two things are maybe not entirely disconnected the pleasure I'm imagining from what you're saying, like the pleasure of presenting in a aggressively, what did you say? Like a slutty queer way is. <laughs> yeah. Visibly. Yeah. Aggressive. Yeah. Is, is sort of, there's a disruptive pleasure in it perhaps, but I also yeah. wonder what, what else is pleasurable for you in that? Well, I think, being direct and also demanding space and acknowledgement and recognition is important and feels powerful. And also like the glamour side of it is like a cue to other queers also. Um, Yeah. Can you say more about that? Like it's it's a cue to other queers, but maybe like a particular... It's a cue to some queers or to some people. That's the pleasure in it is like you're you're kind of nodding to people who Yeah, I'm just curious a little bit more about that. Like who do you feel like you're you're trying to cue in or you're cueing in? Or what are you trying to convey with your glamour for <laughs> self? Um I love glamour. Um Yeah. Well, I mean it's like a f- it's for me, it's, I'm sure it's different for me, but for me, it feels yeah. flirty. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a flirty person, and my queer slutty aesthetic is definitely a part of that. I was, I toured for a month with this band called Spray Tan, which is like a queer slut rock band. And we were all very aggressively queer and slutty and touring through like the Midwest and the South and Texas. And there was this great, power in that mm-hmm. and we also felt like the social socio-political shift because our first big tour was in 2016 we toured for a month and then we toured for two weeks the following year after the election and it was actually much it felt much scarier to to tour like under the trump era as visibly trans Mm. people so it that filtering down like entered 
the everyday like driving but we had amazing experiences at shows what what was so amazing about that we played like a I don't know, like a 15-person show in Birmingham, Alabama. And, like, it was – everyone there was trans. Mm-hmm. And, like, none of us had any personal connection to Alabama. Like, we didn't have – like, I can't even remember how we got the show. I think it was, like, a series of, like, you know, like, Facebook email connections. And it was just, like, we just found ourselves in, in this, like, totally amazing, like, DIY trans environment that we, like, didn't know about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what it was like for, I mean, I recently interviewed someone who's talking a lot about being queer in the South and, and being, you know, non-binary in the South and all sorts of complications and, you know, difficulty with that, but also the connection to people who are queer, visibly queer, visibly or aggressively queer in the South and and determined to kind of claim space around that and create community around that is, you know, really powerful. It's, um, I think we in our, in urban areas in New York or San Francisco or whatever, have you know, such immense privilege in, in, in a lot of ways in that regard, that there mm-hmm. are a multiplicity of spaces that we can enter into and kind of express different parts of our queer selves. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why I think it's important to tour. Mm. Like, do readings or performances or shows in places where there's much smaller queer communities. Because, like, I don't, like, I make work for, like, collectively minded and, like, for other queers and trans and Arab people. Yeah. And, like you said, there isn't, an abundance of that everywhere and mm-hmm. it can be very special to perform for like your intended audience mm. yeah I love that really love that so I'm really glad that we we got a chance to talk I think you know there will be a lot of links in the show notes to some of the things that you talked about including your book um, but let the audience know where they can find you and find out about you um, if they want to follow your work and who you are. I am the most active on Instagram and it's at wolf underscore hour wolf like the animal and hour like time. And that's my Twitter is the same, but it, I use it less often than Instagram. And I have a website where I keep my show dates updated. It's andreaak.com. And you can get my book from Small Press Distribution. Yes, you can. All right, cool. Well, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. 